If I were asked to name the musical form that typified the Romantic era, the music of the 19th century, I think I'd say the scherzo. That one's by Chopin, the last of a set of four he wrote in the 1830s and 40s. It sounds cheery, tuneful, lyrical, and, of course, humorous. In Italian, scherzo means a joke or a jest. The funny thing is, though, there isn't a great deal that's funny about many scherzi. If they're humorous at all, they're sardonic, ironic, touching on darker, more dangerous subjects. This is another kind of scherzo altogether, still by Chopin, but now fast, fierce, furious, demonic, defiant, heaven-storming. It's Chopin's first scherzo, in many ways closer to the all-encompassing 19th-century style of instrumental scherzos, which Chopin developed from Beethoven. Over the next 40 minutes or so, we'll explore both of the scherzi we've heard, not least to find out why they sound so amazingly different. But for now, let's concentrate on the first, the B minor scherzo, with its dark, arresting opening chords. Those opening chords seem to catch us in their swing immediately, like the chiming of a cosmic bell. And there's something very disturbing about them as well. It's because the chords are dissonant. Chopin could have begun... the simplest cadence in the home key, and it would still be quite striking as a gesture which explores the piano's sonorities, but also for not beginning with the key chord. Many lesser composers at the time would have thought themselves daring to have done that, and the young ladies in the audience would have swooned at such a virile stroke. But Chopin's imagination has long since advanced beyond that. Not only does he position the chords differently, that is, with different bass notes... But he also adds a foreign element that sets the chords fizzing. To the first, he adds a C-sharp. And to the second, an E, making it a dominant seventh. Suddenly the harmonies are dynamic. The first chord isn't static, it's going to move, sometime. When? That's the excitement. And where to? And the second chord's going to resolve. But how? And because these chords have remained suspended in time, the main theme, when it comes, is all the more striking. quavers beginning low down in the keyboard and moving like a rocket up to the top again. But again there's a sense of unease, sinister undertones perhaps. This time the rhythm's causing it. The first half of that musical sentence is in fairly clear groups of threes. Mm -hmm. 
but the answer seems to go against that. Groups of twos. So this onrushing melody is anything but smooth and direct, more like turbulent and disruptive. Chopin repeats the pattern, answering that with a vigorous descent. left hanging again on an unresolved dissonance. With a superb sense of drama, Chopin unwraps the chord, explores it, if you like, to release its grip and lead it gently to resolution. The notes of the chord are tightly packed. It's a diminished seventh. And they're contained within this interval. Having struck the chord, Chopin meditates on that outline and the rhythmic impulse is calmed. That's the ghosts of the challenging opening, as it were, exorcised. This... ...has become this docile animal. Which returns directly to the turbulent opening. So that's the first section. Chopin, as I said, took over Beethoven's form. Beethoven developed his scherzos out of the classical minuet and trio form. So what I've called scherzo up to now actually contains two main elements. The scherzo itself, corresponding to a classical minuet, plus a trio. In Chopin's classical models, the scherzo, or rather minuet, often had a very common musical structure. An opening section, the A section, which was repeated, and then a contrasting section which would return to the material of the opening, B.A., we would call it, and that too was repeated. We've reached the end of the first A repeat, ready to move into B. This is where the most imaginative composers really went for it. But before we hear what Chopin did, there's one more aspect of this opening section I'd like to look at. In fact, it's a key to Chopin's piano style, which we take for granted now, but was astonishingly original in its day. Listen to that opening onrush of notes from the start again. 
That might sound chaotic, but it's all held in place by a firm harmonic underlay. In the first four bars, it's simply a chord of B minor. That's heavily decorated, though. Each group of three notes starts with a dissonance, first in the left hand, and then in the right. Here's how it fits together, still in slow motion. For all the complexity, Chopin always keeps the underlying harmony clearly in mind. The end of that phrase is really just two chords. Our ears sense the logic. But take the dissonant passing notes out of context, and they sound excruciating. How about this from just a couple of bars later? Well, that's these two notes with two momentary dissonances in the right hand. That seems nonsense on its own, but the next beat makes everything clear. This is very much Chopin's way of doing things. While one hand lays down a logical, though often very subtle, harmonic progression, the other hand is deftly eliding it, sidestepping it, delaying the resolutions, but so fast that we can only follow it subliminally. Chopin has a kind of three-dimensional approach to harmony. He devises wonderful schemes, but can see round the back of them as well. The result elevates the music from simple passage work to something much more powerful, giving it tension, depth and brilliance. Now we've analysed that writing, it all seems simple enough. But to have imagined it in the first place and developed a style in which something like that could happen, well, that's genius. And it's true, Chopin did invent it himself. Sure, other great pianists were working towards similar concepts, but the largely self-taught Chopin was the great original. In the next part of this first scherzo, he explores this style of piano writing across a broad harmonic field that's as alluring as it is apparently simple. Chopin could have invented such graceful modulations, but he doesn't actually write them like that, of course. This is how they come out when given the treatment of the opening. We're now into the second B section of the scherzo, and it isn't long before the opening material returns. As I mentioned, the whole of this second half is repeated, except that editions of the work, and we must assume Chopin's lost autograph, write it all out again, presumably to prevent pianists skipping the repeat. This begs an important point. Why is the repeat of the first section not written out? Wasn't Chopin concerned to make sure that was also repeated? In fact, many pianists don't repeat it, which I think throws the scherzo section out of balance. Anyway, here's the whole of the second half of the scherzo, and when what I called the exorcised version of the opening comes back for the last time, listen how Chopin subtly extends and alters it to lead into the trio. Mm -hmm. 
We finally reached the trio, a complete change of mood. But just before we explore it, did you spot the difference in that exorcised ghost passage I was talking about? Here's the original version. Which is now subtly altered. changed is one chord, which Chopin now reinterprets one tiny change in the bass shifts the musical meaning completely. And there's another change. The long suspended note from before is stretched out much further and treated to a series of almost imperceptible harmonic variants. Listen to the series of new short upbeats onto the longer notes. Those upbeats, achacaturas, to give them their correct name, outline a series of harmonies that almost don't happen. Because they're just upbeats, the effect is only to allude to the harmonies rather than play them straight out, as Chopin could have done with some big spread chords. I said it was subtle, but even that word's too clumsy for Chopin's deftness here. It's almost as though he's trying not to let us follow his thinking, so that when he makes his next point, it sounds surprising and yet perfectly natural at the same time. It's akin to the art of good conversation, and Chopin was famous for his social grace and poise. Similarly, his graceful playing and the civilised logic of his music eased its passage among listeners who might otherwise have been confounded by its originality. In other words, I'm sure that while it beguiled them, they were unaware of the implied harmonic asperities, the rhythmic verve, which only just managed not to be savage, or the extended lyricism, which stretched the capacity of the essentially percussive piano to new degrees. Here, in the trio, it's that lyrical aspect that comes to the fore. This sweet, beguiling melody seems so simple, so natural, and yet there's far more to it than meets the ear, or perhaps I should say, far less. Looked at on the page, no melody seems to be there. The right hand has this rocking figure.
and the left this widely spaced arpeggio. But put them together, and by some alchemical process of which only the piano is capable, and which admittedly includes a judicious touch of sustaining pedal, a lullaby magically emerges. Chopin knows what sounds are heard in our fields and woods, one Polish newspaper wrote before he left Warsaw. He has listened to the song of the Polish villager, he has made it his own. By the time Chopin composed this scherzo, a year after that newspaper article, he was trying to make a name for himself, and not very successfully, in Vienna. Perhaps the troubled nature of the music at the start of the scherzo reflects not only his professional frustration, but also the unhappy circumstances of his leaving Warsaw. His passion for the singer, Constancia Gwatkowska, was blighted by the opposition of her parents. For all the tranquillity in the trio, darker thoughts from the first half are destined to intrude. This may be a dream, but it's about to be broken by dawn. And what a rude awakening that is. We recognise it immediately as the chord that started the whole work. Chopin's effected a wonderful melding of the end of the trio with the introduction of the scherzo. You could say that the chiming chord is a structural signpost as well as an emotional one. But it works dramatically as well. Chopin can jolt our emotions as well as satisfy our need to know where we're going. And even as he does so, he keeps us on the edge of our seats, waiting for the threatened return of the storm and stresses of the opening. Chopin marks the repeat molto con fuoco, very fiery, so that although the notes are the same, they should sound even more troubled and distracted. And he accelerates things as well, missing out the repeats we heard the first time, before leading to a new final section. This coda takes the music to new depths of anger and despair, and new heights of technical brilliance as well. The right hand takes in angular octave jumps, while the left hand hammers at the lower reaches of the keyboard in stabbing leaps. 
It all builds up a huge emotional charge that finds release in one of the most strident dissonances ever struck on a keyboard to this time. Terrifying dissonance is all the more effective for being logically simple. It's just a version of the opening chord of the whole work, a familiar seventh chord, over a dissonant note, F-sharp. Before it resolves in the next bar to a good old dominant seventh, which at last seems to bring the opening harmonies to a satisfying resolution and a final rush to a distinctly unhappy end. Thunderous chords set the final seal on Chopin's first scherzo and remind us once again that, for Chopin at least, the scherzo form was every bit as much about conflict and turbulence as it was about playfulness. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Chopin finished his first scherzo in 1832 on the brink of making his name. Ten years later, he composed his fourth and final scherzo and by then he had travelled a long way as a composer. How would you describe this music? Relaxed and happy? Sunny? Skittish? It's very different from the first scherzo, and indeed the two intervening scherzos, both in minor keys, B-flat minor and C-sharp minor, both darkly demonic in their outer sections, though their trio sections are luminously lyrical. From the little we heard there, this is confident and complex, generous and expansive music. By the time he wrote the fourth scherzo, Chopin had become rich and successful, a legend in his own lifetime, a great but reclusive pianist who almost never played in public. He gave only one recital in 1842, and that a private one, but highly profitable. More importantly, he was in an established, though distinctly unorthodox, relationship with the novelist Georges Sand. The fourth scherzo expresses his feelings at this time better than any words. Where the first scherzo is the music of a young man disappointed in love, this fourth scherzo is altogether lighter, more whimsical, and it's certainly humorous. We're never quite sure what's coming next. The first theme offers a whole series of contrasting ideas. A unison. A tripping idea. And a leaping idea, which is much closer to the gossamer Mendelssohnian scherzo than anything in Beethoven. There's one more idea, a teasing, arching phrase. 
This last phrase leads to a repeat of the opening music, which Chopin playfully brings in a bar earlier than we're expecting, overlapping the two ideas. A surprising turn in the harmony, too. First time round, we had this. Now, Chopin sends us away from the home key with subtle wit, planting that foreign note at the bottom of the chord. Notice how Chopin breaks up the arching melody with beautiful passages of filigree there. Again, there's a real playfulness in the way he suddenly throws in new ideas. This filigree work is actually like the conjurer's handkerchief. It blinds us to what we should have been listening to in the left hand. We don't know it, but Chopin stores that little left-hand idea up his sleeve for later on in the magic show. We've had the wool pulled over our ears by the beguiling filigree. Let's put that opening section back together. At this time, listen out for the way Chopin flits between his ideas so deftly. This fourth scherzo just abounds with the fruits of Chopin's fertile musical imagination. But there's far more to it than simply a succession of brilliant ideas. The music is growing organically all the time, in marked contrast to the music of the first scherzo, which on the whole was content with statement and counterstatement, and in which the old formal outlines were still very clear. And so we're getting some feel for the mature Chopin. The ideas are in a constant state of growth. They put out new figures, like buds on a branch, and literally spread. And if the music returns to anything like a starting point, it's only to launch out on a new and longer trajectory. So what's happened to the formal ground plan of the good old minuet? Such organic growth can't really be contained within the regularly repeated phrase structure of, say, a Haydn or a Mozartian minuet. The form has to be flexible to allow the growth to happen. In fact, the underlying shape is there. 
a bit like pinning a climbing rose to the wall, giving it a basic shape, the plant still growing freely around it. I'll show you what I mean. Chopin is about to reach what in earlier scherzi would have been the double bar ending the first part. The filigree work returns and seems to be leading us to a nicely formed cadence in B, the dominant. Oops, the clown has tripped. Chopin has relaxed us too much, and he springs a surprise to ginger us up. Humour, it seems, is back on the agenda. Now, though, the clown goes skittering off towards the cadence we were expecting. So there's our chord of B major at last, a point of repose before the second half. It sounds so conclusive, and that's because Chopin's wedded this important point in the harmonic structure with one of his earlier melodic ideas, right from the opening, in fact. Like a shadow, that melody hangs over the chords Chopin uses to create his cadence. Play the melody and the chords together, and they fit perfectly. So this wayward tale is held together by a strong underlying framework. By the way, if you thought my circus imagery was a little far-fetched, don't forget Chopin was famous for his wicked impersonations. He was an all-round entertainer. After a delicious mini French waltz, the opening ideas return, as we would expect towards the end of the scherzo section. But again, Chopin's approach is an organic one. He develops the material a little. Instead of presenting the melody on its own, Chopin plonks the keynote down underneath as a drone, giving a firm tonal anchor to what in the beginning had sounded somewhat rootless. But that's only the half of it. Chopin adds another moving part to soak up some of the energy from that busy French waltz. One has to admire Chopin's contrapuntal freedom. He doesn't make heavy weather of the new part, it just grows effortlessly out of the material. Chopin played Bach every day. He and that other contrapuntal genius, Mozart, were his gods. Mozart, in particular, made light work of setting independent strands of music against each other. And the next time we hear the opening motif, it's not only harmonised differently, but sprouts a rhythmic ending, which the left hand imitates.
Now Chopin pulls the rabbit out of the hat. Remember that business with the conjurer's handkerchief, when he dazzled us with his brilliant passage work? Here it is as a reminder. there's a real surprise. Chopin cuts out the second arching phrase, leaving just a dismembered chord to carry us off in a new direction. Talk about taking the lid off a can of proverbials. One simple change in the original pattern triggers an eruption into the work's biggest climax so far. The idea of continuous development carries on into the trio, but there's also a striking simplicity here. The texture is open, for the most part a simple rocking bass. It's rather suggestive of a barcarolle, with a melody on top in single notes. That's virtually the whole of the opening statement of the trio. In classical times, it would have been repeated verbatim. But at this stage of Chopin's creative life, his music is in a constant state of development. It can't be caged by formal barriers, though underneath the structure is still there. So the ever-resourceful Chopin adds a second voice to the melody, making it sound almost like an Italian serenade. After this repeat that isn't a repeat, Chopin crosses the point where there would have been a double bar into the second half of the trio. And here there's one last process of organic growth and development before the scherzo returns. But this time Chopin shifts his attention from melody to harmony, taking the music through a succession of distant keys. What we sense is some kind of mysterious journey. For Chopin, it's his way of setting up the most effective return to the home key.
And so we're back into the scherzo, with yet another variant of that opening motif. The return seems so natural, so satisfying, because we've travelled over such a distance. In fact, from as far as F major. Which is about as far as you can get, harmonically, from B major. And that's our route back to the home key of E. The scherzo repeat proceeds largely as expected. Though, it being Chopin, many details are varied. Even where there are changes, we always know exactly where Chopin is and follow him happily on his journey of continuous variation. And that's the key to this music. There's a kind of inner coherence to Chopin's musical logic, which makes it very different from the B minor scherzo we looked at earlier. This is unquestionably the music of an experienced thinker. It's organic, whereas the first one was schematic however imaginatively so. In formal terms, both pieces have the same outline. In detail, they couldn't be more different. We could listen to the later scherzo almost completely unaware of the formal background, and the natural growth of the music would keep us interested and involved. The form of the first scherzo is much more prominent in the listening experience. Chopin expects us to use it as a template and wants to play on our expectations. Ten years later, Chopin's found out how to be convincingly unpredictable, to give himself as much space as he needs within strict formal limits. In a sense, his discourse creates its own form. It's a moot point which came first, form or content. It's all one. In the coda of this fourth scherzo, Chopin finds room for one more spurt of creative energy tossing around his original ideas in new combinations, throwing the dice one last time. back in the home key, and with that return of the gossamer arpeggios, the music could end. But there's one more thing to be said, and it's said with bravura octaves. They aren't mere theatrical whipping up of excitement, but a final realisation of the power latent in the one motif that hasn't been singled out for treatment until now. They emerge out of the tripping idea of the main theme. and leave us with an unmistakable feeling that the masterful Chopin has finally worked through every conceivable implication of his prolific and bountiful material. Mm -hmm. 